Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I am joined today, and I'm joined as always, however, this time with a glass of Irish whiskey in hand. I'm joined with Mr. Jason. <laughs> you take that back. <laughs> you take that back. <laughs> listen, listen, yeah. listen, listen. Oh, boy. That, I, I said I hosted... I hosted an Irish tasting the night before this yeah. this recording, and I told the people in the tasting, the the Irish are my cousins, mm-hmm. and if I am able to represent the best of their spirit, okay. then I am doing well by my cousins. So it's only a joke. It's only a joke. I will also hasten to add that Ireland played Scotland at Murrayfield in Edinburgh the weekend before this podcast recording. Okay. And, oh, our boys, our Scottish boys fought tenaciously in the first half. They played a blinding game of rugby against Mm. arguably the best team in the world. Mm. Arguably. America? Ahem. We we went in at the half yeah. down eight seven. Okay, fought valiantly, valiantly. But regular regular followers of Scottish sports will know how this one ends, which is uh-huh. in this my full time. We had lost twenty two points to seven, so fourteen unanswered in the second half was our, our downfall. Wow. So you started off, it was 8-7. You were doing okay. There was hope. And then what was the In final? In the half, yeah. In the half. half. And what was 22, the final? 22-7. 22. 22 they seven. pummeled you. Well, so giving up 14 points to Ireland and a half is nothing to be embarrassed about. The trouble comes when you don't put up any points of your own, which again against Ireland is nothing to be embarrassed about. But boy, that first half of rugby that we yeah. played against the Irish, some of the best Scottish rugby I've seen in three decades. Yeah. It was absolutely phenomenal. But, 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 as I said to the, the gathered group last evening, I will not let a rugby result taint <laughs> my feelings for my Irish cousins. And so I will I continue to represent them well. And last night was a lovely tasting. Lovely tasting. Let me ask you a question, Joshua. <laughs> uh, okay. You know how you know how the you know how the Irish in these single pot still releases mm, mm-hmm. do these split mash bills yes. of malted and unmalted barley. Mm-hmm. I tend to find that that creates a very pronounced cereal note from note to palate to finish that as a scotch drinker and as a scotsman who loves his single malts and that full 100% malted barley Mm -hmm. oomph Mm -hmm. I often find that cereal note to be a little lacking in the, the main frame of an Irish whiskey and I'm curious yeah. your perception of that and how you consider that, because I know you are also a 100% malted barley, single malt guy. 
It's a very specific flavor, and it it seems it seems almost unavoidable when they're doing the you know the the pot still right that that unmalted to malted barley mash bill which. I think I've got red breast in my glass, and and I think they're fifty fifty or somewhere about there. Yep, yep. Yeah, it, I have to be in a mood for it. it. I have to be looking for that flavor because it's it's unavoidable. And, and it's funny until now, I hadn't really even considered how prominent that note is, and if it's that mm-hmm. prominent, does that go to show that? Barley is, in fact, a flavor creator and not just something for <laughs> yield. <laughs> well, um, I will not make the reveal to the listener just right. yet, but I will hold up to the camera. This was my fifth uh, whiskey. This was my closing whiskey oh, okay. uh, last evening yeah. from an Irish distillery that is very barley forward and very terroir driven. Oh, okay, um, and to and to my mind, it was the it was the best of the bunch. Isn't that interesting? I was expecting <laughs> you to say the opposite. I thought you were going to say, "Well." <laughs> I hate to say it, but it was the best of the bunch. So, so, so the reveal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Go on. I know you're going to do a reveal. May, may, are you going to reveal? Yeah, you are going to reveal. Okay, absolutely. so you, absolutely. you do the reveal, and then I think I'll ask the question. I think the question is better asked after the reveal. I think could be wrong. So my reveal for the listener is the fifth whiskey of the tasting was. The peated Waterford. This was the Ballybannon, so Irish peat with Irish grown barley. Um, it it was excellent. It was really excellent, and it's a hundred percent malted. That was one question. Barley okay. in the mash bill. Yeah. So so it's peated, which is a leg up, yeah. right? And and. Every Waterford comes with a, a code on the back. Put in the co- code on the website. You get more information than you can possibly use. It is incredible. Mm. It's mm-hmm. like taking a sip of water from a fire hose. It is a lot. Um, it was young. It's three years and, and eight months, maybe. Mm-hmm. Peated lets you get away with young stuff, right? Yep. We've talked about that yep. on the podcast plenty of times, right? Hundred percent malted barley going on in there. It was, yeah. When I was when I was making up the the samples for the tasting, my office smelled like mezcal. Mm. It had this fresh, bright smoke mm. going on mm-hmm. that, um, I, like, it, it really had me. I I literally turned my head in my office and thought, "Do I have an open bottle of mezcal somewhere?" Wow. And then I realized, "Oh, it's." It's the Waterford Peter that I just poured 20 samples of. So, okay. So, so my question to you then, because that's what I saw. I w- if you weren't going to do the reveal, I was going to at least highlight the point that it said peated. And so do mm-hmm. you think, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you can properly answer this. I, I, I just don't know. But do you think it was the best of the bunch simply because it was peated and you needed that peated element? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. 
<laughs> I can answer that question very easily. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. But but I'll tell you that the lineup was actually Kilbegan, Small Batch Rye, mm-hmm. into Redbreast Lestau, which is what I've got in my glass right now, mm-hmm. into Teeling Small Batch Rum Casks, mm. into the Teeling Virgin Chinkapin Oak, which mm. you and I tasted mm-hmm. together on the last episode of Extra Extra, and then closed with the Waterford Ballybannon, which was the peated 100%. Malted barley, Waterford. So let's let's focus on this Waterford. At fifty percent ABV. Oh, good, FYI. nice solid ABV too. Um, so this is Ballybannon's the farm, right? Am I correct? Correct. So it's not the barley type. Does it? Does it talk? I imagine it talks about the barley type. Concerto. Okay. How much of a focus on the barley is this bottling, or do you think it's more peat focused? I, I would, if I was selling it, I would definitely make it peat forward. I would definitely be hammering home the fact that this is Irish peat, which isn't that funny for where today's episode is going, right? Between, We're between be... barley having flavor <laughs> and peat existing in other locales, yes, continue. Right, isn't that <laughs> terrific? So, so yeah, just like just like Westland are talking about Washington State peat and Washington State barley, here you've got Waterford with Irish peat and Irish grown barley, and and able to make something really quite compelling mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I. You know, it's it's one hundred and ten dollars for the Waterford. It's a lot of money, right? It's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. That's I would. Money. I was saying to the group last night, it's a lot of money, but look at what you're getting in return. Yeah. Like I really mean it. If you go to the website and you put in your code, you get details on every single cask mm. that went into this. Batch and it, it's eleven thousand bottles. It told me that on the website. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives you it, the exact breakdown of every single cask. It then gives you the exact breakdown of the batch, and is telling mm-hmm. you what's the percentage of um, American oak first fill, what's the percentage of virgin American oak, ah. what's the percentage of French wine, and then there's a van, van do, van do something. Uh, is 11% of the makeup as well. Um, hmm. it, it shows you the farmer who's growing it. it it's everything. It's everything what's you his, could ever hope for. What's the farmer's shoe size? Does it have that? <laughs> it's, yeah. See, I wish you hadn't asked me that. I could have told you what he had for breakfast <laughs> that day, but I couldn't tell you his shoe size. <laughs> I mean, it tells you, you know, what's the yeah. harvesting date, uh, what was the planting yeah, date, love, what was the mashing yeah. date. It's... It's it's a lot. So so 110, paying living wage, smaller outfit out of Ireland, putting it all together, peated. Yeah, it. There's no getting away from the fact it's a lot of money. It's the exact same price as the Teeling Chinkapin, mm. and mm-hmm. and aside from that being the Chinkapin, um, there's you know there's a lot of bits and bobs on the box as as we showed on extra extra. Yeah, sure. But aside from aside from knowing it's chinkapin and aside from knowing it's fifty percent unmalted and fifty percent malted uh, in the makeup, I don't really have any other information about 
the chinkapin. So yeah. if information is worth something, you know, there's it costs money to maintain a website and put all that information on it. At the end of the day, if the whiskey was terrible, we wouldn't be having a conversation over whether it was worth 110, whether it was valuable or, or valuable or not. Uh, I think we'd still so, be having a conversation. The conversation would just simply take a different turn. <laughs> Lot shorter, right? Yeah, it's terrible, and it's one hundred and ten dollars. <laughs> do not buy it, right? It's good, and it's one hundred and ten dollars. Okay, how do I justify this purchase? <laughs> Indeed, definitely uh, the way to go on that. Listen, speaking of Ireland, uh, we have a Scotsman that wrote in. Checks out. <laughs> We're good people. We know how to yeah. write. Yeah, I, li- I like what you did. You, you've done this a couple times now, where you you front loaded an email into the conversation before we brought in, you know, the main portion of the, of the podcast, you know, the, the interview. Mm-hmm. And we are sitting on a number of emails and I figured, why don't we, <laughs> why don't we slip one in on the front end and then maybe we can uh-huh. slip one in, in the rear, uh, the back end, uh, the posterior Sounds. of this episode as well. <laughs> I would say it sounds rude when you say it, but I feel like that was by design. I have no idea what you're talking about. So this email uh, came in from Kevin Dunlop, and actually he sent it in February 13th. Oh, okay. So this is one of our more recent emails that we're behind yeah, on. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and, and he's talking to um, the mailbag episode a little bit here. So, And there's key bits that I think are a bit apropos to the overall episode that we've got going on and some of the things we may be discussing. So Kevin says, good afternoon. A thousand apologies to Jess and Elijah for not including them in my email question. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh For once in my life, I was behind on listening to the podcast and the question was already in before you announced the team would be together for the uh, mailbag. All right. right. So he all right, he said, all right, hey, right. J&J, and he could have said JJJ and E, of course. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Having said that, absolutely brilliant to get their input. I loved when Elijah said he struggled to get the levels of others sometimes when nosing and tasting and wasn't scared to check in with others. The, and then in parentheses, it says the wifey nose and nose as in the, the thing on your face, not in something one knows or understands. So uh, to check in, with other, check in with others and YouTube. To hear someone in the industry say that was enlightening. Secondly, as Jason pointed out, I was not the one with the Lafroig Select email, as, uh, as we may recall. I confused him with, <laughs> with some other bottle gift giving. He goes on, I was, however, the one with the immediate reply to that with a bottle that the Scottish band Scary Vore autographed and gifted uh-huh. to the local venue owner. So Josh- I remember yeah, that story. Yep, we covered too. that. I did too. So, so Joshua was in the right cups, but at the wrong tree. <laughs> I hope the whole SCN team is well and had a wonderful visit together, Kevin. There you go. Ah, and and a wonderful visit to Westland together. Uh huh. See what I said? It's a bit apropos to what's going on here. 
Yeah, that's yeah, that's very cool. I I, I like that he's <laughs> he's sending in apologies um, for for leaving off two of the people. Obviously, we we announced in the the last episode Elijah has moved on to to pastures new, and and we wish him the very very best and Indeed. his family the very best. Indeed. Later today, we will have Jess in the news segment mm-hmm. of today's. Uh, coverage, mm-hmm. some very big news. We did promise that we would have Jess in a future news segment, and today is that day. I am not being made a liar for once. And, promises uh, made, promises delivered, Jason. There you go. <laughs> Gosh, that really does belong in a T-shirt. <laughs> um, but 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 here's just just a very quick thing, and maybe then we'll 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 shunt it over to ourselves. I always love it when we do that. Mm-hmm. But we did record the first half of the mailbag episode in the car driving uh, up to Skagit Valley to go visit the WSU, the Washington State University Bread Lab, mm-hmm. to talk barley, to meet Dr. Steve Jones over there, the graduate students over there. Fantastic, fantastic visit. Really I wonderful. L- I legitimately wanted to stay and and roll up my sleeves and get into some research with them. That was that was so exciting listening to their ears of focus, and and then we went off to the the maltsters for mm-hmm. Westland. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was wild. That was wild. And while that. we were not allowed to take pictures for sharing, we did watch barley being peated. Mm-hmm. We're going to say no more about that because I don't anymore. want to accidentally say yeah. the wrong thing. Do you want to give away trade secrets? <laughs> that was super cool. I'm throwing up my hands on that one. <laughs> and then and then we went for some lunch that was delicious, delicious. Mm-hmm. And then we went to the warehouses and popped some bungs. Then we went to the bottling hall and interviewed Matt Hoffman mm-hmm. and Solom was was an area of focus for us uh, in this chat. Joshua, after setting the day here, is there anything you want to draw particular attention to before we go to Matt? Yeah, a couple things. Um, firstly, I think we'd be remiss to, to say to, to not mention Anna Hines, who was with us on this trip and hundred percent right really helped to set up the 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 weekend with us and you know she's somewhat newer to the Westland team, but she's an absolute superstar and it's been great working with her and agreed yeah yeah I'll just I'll I'll, I'll leave it there I mean she she's the lady who who helps us with samples we got to retaste some stuff in the warehouse which which was super cool. Um, the last thing I'll mention too, you, you mentioned Solom. Obviously, Matt's going to go into that a little bit. But Solom, our listeners may mm-hmm. remember Matt and Steve Holly at, at one time talking about it. And it was their peat project. And, and this is their peated whiskey finally being, being revealed, being released. And, you know, we, we often talk about being part of a distillery's evolution or at least being able to follow along the evolution. And it's so nice to, mm-hmm. to, to talk about something three to four or five years ago to, to then finally 
taste the final product. And I, I just thought it, tasting that whiskey along with Matt was a great way to frame the whole conversation. Oh, Matt, we spent a really long time with you today. Did it feel like a long time? <laughs> you tell really us. Kind of extend. <laughs> well, just I could hear by the tone in his voice. <laughs> well, it went on forever. Well, we got to do things with you. Um, Settle. <laughs> go easy. That we've never done with him before. We've never been comfortable enough to no. Um no, being with you up at Skagit Valley Maltings up at the Bread Lab was was just really cool because it's something that you've been talking about for quite some time. And it's one of those things where the story makes sense and it's all well and good and then you get to visit it and see it and then all, you know, things start to click. And that was a really special, a special time. Yeah, I mean, it's, we try to tell the story as well as we can, but... There's nothing like quite being up there and seeing it and seeing like the yeah. wall of like the seed bank, right? Mm-hmm. With all the different varieties yeah. and seeing the different barleys that are being hung from the wall and in blues and purples and blacks. And, and then just seeing the rest of, I mean, you guys met the other PhD students and that's mm-hmm. where, you know, for us, the thing that's most exciting about it is we're just a sliver mm. of the whole thing. It's we're yeah. barley and we're whiskey within barley, but then they've got PhD students working on wheat. They're working on rye which is all part of this, you know, mm-hmm. movement to kind of move to a different form of uh, of agriculture, which is super compelling. Yeah. So it's an amazing thing to be a part of, you know? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, really, really wild. I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that. Happy so far. Mm-hmm. And then we got to visit your new warehouses. Last time we were at your warehousing was May 23rd, 2014. Am yep. I right on that, that's, Jason? That's the number. Good job. Um, you can teach an old dog new tricks. But how to count? At least dates. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> From the past. So what what about warehousing up near Skagit Valley makes more sense to warehousing in Hoquiam? Yeah, well when you know, we we joined the Remy Quantro group in January of twenty seventeen. We always knew that we were going to need to transition our warehouses from the town of Hoquiam, which is out on the Pacific coast. Uh, of Washington State, it's about 50 miles from the from the Quinault Rainforest, where there's huge amounts of rain, high humidity, pretty mm. stable temperatures. But when we were moving out of there, we said we're going to need to find some place. We're not going to be able to put these casks in downtown Seattle, where the distillery is. <laughs> not that we'd even want to. Um, you know, where is another place far enough away that we could envision? You know, a place we could call home. And yeah. You know, we looked around and Skagit was already that place for us and it happened to work out. We found this really beautiful site where we could put these warehouses and they are traditional, you know, dunnage style warehouses with, Mm -hmm. you know, concrete slab down the middle and dirt floors. So uh, the we are in pretty close proximity to the ocean here. It's further north, but also further inland where we are here. Okay. Um, so the climate is different from Hoquiam. It's just a little bit drier in the summer, mm-hmm. probably a little bit kind of cooler in the winter, but largely mm-hmm. it's the Pacific Maritime, Pacific Northwest, you know, so yeah. the, the general theme of how Westland matures here will be largely the same. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. You, you answered my question. I was curious to see if you saw any general differences. Well, we've only been here. I mean, we moved all the casks up here in the spring of 2021, so... You know, wow. it's so yeah. it'll be a while, I think, before we really see any measurable difference. Mm-hmm. But wow. we're not anticipating something fundamentally different, you know. And even if even if it is, 
that's okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, this, that's kind of been the whole thing with Westland as we can evolve. Yeah. You know, that was, that was one of the things that, that really hit home when we were at the bread lab and, and, you know, you and one of the PhD students, I forget his name, was just talking about this idea of creating crops where you're, you've got these hybrids that have almost multiple varieties growing at the same time. And I asked, is there a way to track that? Um, like you're going to get more complexity because you have more barley varietals to work with, but can you track the consistency of that? And you didn't seem too concerned about that in any way. No, because the future is, we're not trying to reinvent a better mousetrap with commodities. Commodities is about consistency mm -hmm. and they do a very good job of it, but that's literally the whole point of a commodity is to make a consistent good of whatever it is, whether that's yeah. oil or steel or in our case, barley. Uh, so when we go off of that system, we want to use different barley varieties, resiliency and diversity, you know, in nature is not consistent, but it is consistently reliable, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so that's where the process of blending comes in is we can use that to use the process of blending to make a more consistent yeah. Uh, release style as it comes in the future. But honestly, we're more excited by what comes in. If everything is different that comes in, things that are become really compelling in the cask, we can save and highlight those as limited editions and the rest we can make a consistent release. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. It's almost like we can think of us as blenders working with different distilleries and no longer a single malt distillery, which is, of course, what we are. Interesting. The, the thing that we continually run into is, as independent bottlers sourcing single casks, we're always looking for that unique, singular moment in time. When we then talk to producers, there's always, always that conversation of, well, we could pull this flavor profile and add it to that flavor profile. And I think it's easy for us to forget that that's the producer's line of business. And you're really creating a, or you're pulling from a much larger palette to create a series of stories, releases, additional moments in time. Yeah, and it gets tricky, especially when you get really, you get ahead of steam around, oh, here's this varietal that we're really excited by. And then you might get somewhere where it's like, well, you're, you're going to be a bit player, you know, and mm -hmm. you're going to be a mm -hmm. great bit player, huh. but you can't be a superstar all by yourself. And that's, but that's the thing is that there is so much beauty in, putting all of those bit players together and doing something really amazing. Mm -hmm. This is good whiskey. Thank you. <laughs> End of discussion. How dare you, sir. How dare you. So this is the long-awaited Solom. Solom is our locally peated whiskey where we visit. We saw yeah. today. Yeah. The peat being made. Yes. Uh, the peated malt being made. And this is being released in March of 2023 after, mm -hmm. well, six, almost seven years worth of, of distilling work. And then we really started the project in 2012, not distilling it, but just trying to like, we found the bog, started mm -hmm. working with maltsters to try to get it sourced oh, wow. and all that. So the, it's been a hell of a journey. So the, the guy up at, uh, the guy at the Skagit, Mal Skagit Valley Maltings had said that basically what you did is you Googled Pete Bog, Washington. 
Yeah, that was the truth. Yeah. And, and so, but, but what I hadn't realized is that your search for local Pete goes back now 11 years. Yeah, because it was something we wanted to do right from huh. the beginning. So, I mean, I remember 2011. I, have, I still have it somewhere. I have a big old map of Washington State, probably a four-foot by three-foot yeah. map with bogs marked on it with, like, little red arrows I stuck to it. <laughs> I, I eventually found this this book. It didn't take a long time because, again, I used Google. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's called The Pete Resources of Washington. If you just Google it, you can find it. You can download it. It's from the 60s. And it has a map. It has all – well, not all, but many of the peat yeah. bogs in Washington State mapped, which is super interesting reading if you want to like read about the different types of peat that's in Washington State and things like that. So what would, th- what would that book have been used for back in the 60s? It was what? written by the Department of Mines. Oh, okay. Uh, so mining, presumably. Wow. But, I mean, they're using it. I mean, just like today, I mean, the vast majority of peat is not used in whiskey. It's yeah. used in other things. Um, it's used in potting soil, and it's also used in... Uh, it's used to clean up fuel spills, things like that. It's a great um, mm. spill absorber, oh, as it turns out. Yeah. Okay. So, oh, go ahead. So, with that said, yeah. You know, there are large conversations around peat in the United Kingdom. We're taking out what ninety-six percent of the use done by garden centres, and now the whiskey industry is the only industry using peat in the UK. And there's talk about sustainable draws from peat box, not drying out the whole thing and pulling out the whole thing, creating a trench, but more kind of drawing from it while it's still itself. What does your experience of that look like here in Washington State, and how easy was it to gain access to a peat bog? Mm. Yeah, so it's exactly the same. Uh, We are trying to harvest peat as sustainably as possible. And when you talk about sustainability with peat, there's really, there's two things. There's the carbon footprint of peat, and then there's the uh, environment of the bog that it's in. So the big problem with with peat bogs is the the trench um, uh, trench drain method, mm-hmm. and they cut in the uh, the trench out, and then it drains. And I mean, ideally, you're going to harvest everything in that bog after that point because everything that's in that bog that's reliant on water that's alive is going to die because mm-hmm. uh, all the water is going to go out. Yeah. So. Huh. So that's one thing. The second thing is the carbon footprint. And again, the cut and drain method where the water is drained out, everything that, now that the water is drained out, that's what kept it from decomposing. And that's what kept the CO2 and methane from being released into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So again, you have to harvest all of that stuff. Either way, it's all going to be released into the atmosphere no matter what. Mm. Uh, So that's the big problem with with peat as it's being harvested. So the bog we work with um, doesn't, cut and drain. They actually can't because it's situated on a spring. So it's continually flooded. And it's like, it's like the exact oh. opposite of like the beautiful romantic, like you go to Isla and like the winds blowing through, <laughs> well, you're, through your hair, not my hair. And, and, you know, and you cut the little, you know, the, the brick out of the ground yeah. and you set it aside. It's amazing. It's an amazing experience. And like, if you were to go to this bog, you, you'd, they, they take a backhoe and stick it 10 feet underwater and scrape out this bucket full of, of muck, you know, from underneath yeah, the water. Just sludge. Just sludge. Yeah, it yeah, looks, yeah. it's the opposite of the uh-huh. romantic, but like what uh-huh. comes out of that is you're not pulling the, from the part that's, from the, that's alive within the bog. 
um, you're pulling from what's underneath the kind of bed of it or 10 feet down, even mm. though the peat goes down 40 feet. Mm -hmm. um, and the ecology of the bog remains intact. Mm -hmm. And then also your carbon footprint is limited to just what you pull out, yeah. which is very low, actually, yeah. in the grand scheme of things for, for Westland or for any whiskey distillery. Okay. Um, so we're able to you know, keep that, the footprint of that to a minimum. Um, and, you know, there's 50,000 acres of peat in Washington state. We use two cubic yards of peat a year, you know, <laughs> wow. it's like, okay. so yeah. there's, yeah, scale is all relative. Yeah. So that's two cubic. Okay. Cubic means you go down as well as side to side. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to um, geometry. Uh, Josh man, Hand. I tell you. Um, you, you go down so, and side to side. <laughs> so you only answered one of my two questions. Okay. And so how did you even gain access to a peat bog? So this yeah. peat bog was grandfathered in. And, you know, if I'm totally honest with you, there's been enough stories told to me about how it was grandfathered in <laughs> that I'm not actually sure what the truth is. Okay. Um, but I, the main thing is that it is situated on this spring. And so at least from the, the harvesting of it, it is uh, something that you can't do a cut and drain. Like you couldn't replace it with something else. Mm. Whereas like, there's like neighborhoods in Seattle, like the Ravenna neighborhood of Seattle, like was a peat bog and oh, they wow. drained it and built something on top of it, you know? Oh, okay. So like, um, yeah. so they couldn't huh. develop it or turn it into something else. Maybe that's part of the reason oh, why. Oh, okay. There we go. Um, but, um, but that's been around forever. And the, the funny thing is the guy who, uh, the guy who runs it bought it in retirement and he was a former narcotics detective. And right. he said, I want to buy a peat bog for his retirement uh, gig. Okay, you know, right. whatever. So, Never knew that was an option. Yeah, right? So so he bought this and he was he re retired narcotics detective. And then just, you know, a few years later, weed was legalized in Washington State. And now his biggest customer is the marijuana industry, Oh, which is quite funny to him. And he seems yeah. to have good spirits about it. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Seems to. Yeah. Well, it's just, you know, what, what can you do? So so now I'm curious, what's marijuana production doing with peat bogs? It's the same thing that, um, that the you know, home gardening or potted plants would do. You know, they need... Oh, so we're back to the compost. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because we're planting compost. Yeah, so we still huh. we still do that here. Yep. Wow. <laughs> Josh. That's, it's just pretty wild. It really Josh is wild. Is you'd, you'd mentioned before... That with the the cut and drain kind of kills out the peat bog and the peat bog starts decomposing. Mm. The interesting thing is the way at least the Scotch whiskey industry has talked about it, or at least as I remember it being talked about, was that peat was vegetation that had been decomposing over X number of years. And so it's not really a decomposition what state is that living in if you're well it's not alive yeah. i mean there's the part that's on the surface is what's alive yeah so it's the part that's underneath is is what would have been alive and what would have decomposed quickly under normal circumstances with exposure to oxygen and not being yeah. waterlogged ah uh, so what you're saying is once you do that cut and drain the peat can't continue growing because you're killing off that top well, layer well that's that is also true yeah. but it's basically like um well, you ever heard of like, uh, like those like like bog butter that they find in various places? No. You must seriously no. like, the, no, they find this is a real thing. Uh, <laughs> no, where they'll find like big old you know like big things of butter that some you know ancient 
you know, Celtic oh, okay. person would have thrown in a bog somewhere okay. in the British Isles, and they find in the in like mummified okay. people. Like, I'm not yeah, familiar yeah. with them finding people. Yes, but never yeah. the butter. That's so, <laughs> so, but the whole point is that once it's in there, yeah. it prohibits the decomposition of whatever's in there. Mm-hmm. So, for most peat, absent the butter or the various bodies that are <laughs> that are thrown in there, uh, you know, it, it's it's just the pu- the piling on of the sphagnum mosses and whatever else is growing in there. So you just kind of have this stuff that's not alive anymore, mm. but it's not decomposing either. It's kind of sitting in there. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, eventually it turns into coal, give it enough time. Okay. Um, yeah. That's how the process of coal is created, if, I'm, if I understand correctly. So, um, but you can still, I mean, harvesting underneath, like you can, in Scotland, I think they will, they'll, in some places, cut the top off, mm-hmm. harvest underneath, and then put the top back on. Mm. I don't know if that works or not, but mm-hmm. I've seen it done. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Put the bodies back in. Put the bodies Put the back in. Back on. Spread a layer of butter on top. <laughs> Sounds delicious. You take, but if you took a few bodies out, you'd leave room for extras just in case. That's right. You never know. You never know. Or more butter. <laughs> <laughs> Have people tried to eat this butter? I, w- I would hope Probably. so. Probably. I would, I would hope so. I would hope so. Too, you know, right? Somebody, somebody, somebody is adventurous. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Take, take from like the middle. Core, yeah. Take from the middle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How could you not? I mean, somebody must have. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's done something once. Yeah, yeah once or twice. <laughs> so, so back to Solom. Now we've gone to Gardener's World. Um, going back to Solom, you talk about this scoop coming out. Now, obviously, you need that dried, a la Scotland kilns, blah, blah, blah. How are you then treating that scoop of sludge <laughs> so that it can be used to peat barley? So the first thing to do is to get it away from a, a sludge-like state, <laughs> you know, is to get it from this kind of soupy, you know, hyper waterlogged mess. And what they do is they use a screw press oh. to uh, right on site to press most of the water out. Ah. And so then you've kind of got, it's not bricks necessarily, but you've got closer to the clumpy, mm-hmm. you know, what you'd see in Scotland yeah. um, in terms of the rough composition was still wet, and then yeah. they have to take that, and then they break it apart um, now into powderized forms to dry it to create wow. a uniform kind of drying process. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I wonder if it looks anything like if you go run the back of Springbank and you see their peat pile. It, it looks like a big pile of kind of wet manure. Yeah, and it doesn't look anything like Lefroig's, um, which is yeah, you know, much more either pelletized or. The, you know, the Just kind of the chunks. round bricks. Yeah, but actually, Matt, as you were describing it, I was thinking what you were describing is the absolute opposite of what Springbank has. Because Springbank's got, well, maybe what you're talking about is the process after that. Correct. Ah, okay. Although... Before the powderization. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. It oh, looks okay. like a pile yeah. of wet manure. Yeah. Gotcha. Right? It's got the lumps. So they look like cow pies. Yeah. Okay. No, not even not even that. No, it's more that not that we need to get too far into this yeah. on a podcast episode <laughs> with Westland, but no, I'm thinking more of the manure that would get slung out onto a field for fertilizing. Yeah, not, sure. not a cow pat that's come out yeah. of a cow's buttocks and uh, impacted the earth. Not that. Okay. So clear that up. So talk to me about the makeup of Solom. <laughs> Anyways, um, so Remy are loving this. So yes. <laughs> 
So <laughs> they're not listening. I hope. Uh, <laughs> Solum. Solum. So Solum is a combination of two years of distillate. Well, this is Solum Edition One. The mm-hmm. whole idea with Solum, like its counterparts in the outpost range of Garyana and Colere, is we are exploring these fundamental ingredients. Mm-hmm. Garyana's with the local oak, Colere it's with these different varieties of barley. So Solum is about exploring this local peat. Now, what that means is still kind of to be written, I guess I would say, because like going into it, we didn't know whether it's, are we exploring the different areas of the peat bog, for example, Mm -hmm. different phenolic levels? Mm -hmm. Are we exploring how does the peat have a consistent flavor that you apply that and and blend Mm -hmm. it with other parts of the Westland house style? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really none of those things just yet. Right now we're just trying to get a handle on what is coming out of this? Can we paint, you know, somewhat of a large, you know, overview of like what this peat looks like in mm. the Pacific Northwest. And then from there, you know, in subsequent editions, we can explore, you know, various things related to phenolic level. We can explore how it works with different cast types and things like that. But for the first edition, mm-hmm. for us, it was really important to be able to find a couple of different years that did a t- that did two different things. We always were finding something that was a little bit different about it. It was never heavily peated. There's about 15 part per million phenolic mm-hmm. content. Okay. Um, but it's it's trying. It's it's basically got one foot in the familiar of like the classic phenolic notes, but it also has these two other feet. <laughs> this is the analogy is breaking Cubic down. Feet. Yeah, sure. Yeah, why not? Cubic feet. There you go. Because um, it goes up and down. It as does what, as, as well as side yeah. to side. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> Anybody want to go back to Calumny? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but for me, it was like one part of this this traditional peat note. One part, something that reminds me of of mezcal. It's like it's a vegetative ah. green, okay. like live sort of smokiness. And I get that in some young peated whiskeys in general, but there's just something about this one that just turns that up an extra notch, mm. like burning herbs and things like that. And then there's this other like forest floor, like barky, like toasted mm. leaves sort of thing, which, you know, we don't fully know what went in, you know, to the, to the bog that made this. Sure. If you look at the bog where this comes from, it is in, it is way different from, Isla. It's not sure, just moss. Sure. It's full of trees and wild cranberries and crab apples, all sorts of deciduous bog yes. plants. And, you know, so it kind of makes sense that there's a lot of other stuff in there. Like what was in there that created this peat a long time ago, we don't really know, but, mm. um, but it has made an impact in the flavor. Well, and the thing I'd heard at the distillery uh, when we were there last Saturday was it, it's neither Isla peat nor Highland peat. Yeah. It's Washington State peat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I almost feel like we've talked previously about, you know, Scotch single malt and Indian single malt, and then there's Westland single malt, right? It's you have to keep your head in that space where it is. This is particular to this place, this landscape, this series of ingredients, and, and I think it's it's hard, especially when you just hear peat, and we haven't really encountered peat coming from other places before that this is the beginning of that conversation of, okay, Pacific Northwest peat. What does it do? Yeah, and that's, for us, that the one, the three-legged, uh, you know, individual that this is. I mean, but the one the one foot in... in mutant. The, this, this delicious mutant. This, that's not a leg. The, the, that was, it was only a matter of time. There was, uh, um, 
but the idea that it was partly familiar to us was really important because mm. when, as the things that we've distilled over the past few years, there were some years where like we were like, this is completely unlike anything we've ever tasted, which mm-hmm. is cool as like mm-hmm. a distiller. But then, you know, as a whiskey maker, you know, and as somebody yeah. who's, who's trying to bring a whiskey to the world, if something doesn't have like context, it can be disorienting yep. almost. So what we were able to find here with this first edition was like, let's give people that anchor into what they know of Pete, yep. because you can find it. Some years skew mm-hmm. more towards it. Some years skew more away from it. But let's kind of make sure that people have that safe spot of like, I recognize this as traditional peat, and then it's dipping its its toes into into these other areas of, of these peat flavors. And so from here, now we can, if we wanted to, we could dip our toes further in one direction or another, or play it more conservative, um, things like that. But that frame of reference, you know, be able to say, this is peat. So yes, it's not Isla peat, it's not yeah. Highland peat, but it is peat, and yeah. I get that. But then also, you know that there's something different to it. And that was the trick. That's what we really wanted to do with this first edition. I think, I think you pulled it off. Can you say what the barley is that was peated? Uh, I think it was pilot oh. um, for most of it. Okay. Yep. Washington grown? Yep. All Washington grown. Mm-hmm. All grown in Skagit. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, we're sitting, tasting, yeah. talking. We didn't do any roasted malts. Um, it, we did that part very, very simply. Mm-hmm. And then the wood? A mixture of new oak and refill... Uh, casks, yeah, yeah. No, there's no wine cask. Nothing super clever in here. We just wanted to play it pretty straight. And bottled at fifty ABV. So if if your typical educated single malt whiskey drinker, right, who who knows their traditional peated Scotch whiskeys, and they say, "Oh, that's Kilhoman. I know what Isla Peat tastes like," or "This is Ardmore. I know what." Highland peat tastes like. Could you describe to your mind what Washington State peat tastes like? I can begin to draw some outlines yet because I don't, I don't, I don't even know what this one bog can do. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think yeah. we have to be careful to not pin ourselves in. Yeah, sure. There's eleven different types of uh, sphagnum mosses that grow in Washington State. There's like six or seven different classifications of peat, depending upon what was in their sedimentary peat mm. versus something called rifle peat, which is made out of woody material mm. versus, you know, so there's, you know, fibrous peat. So there's all sorts of different broad classifications wow. before you even dive into like the individual characteristics. But I think in general, what we're seeing is more of this, uh, away from the pure sphagnum uh, moss, like iodine medicinal mm-hmm. notes mm-hmm. and more into this kind of wild earthiness and also yeah. this forest floory sort of barky earthy mm-hmm. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not like campfire necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's close. Yeah. But it's like a campfire made of leaves and bark only, yeah. you know, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. For me, it's, it's, it's rooty. It's barky. Yeah. It's, it's rooty is a good word. Yeah. Of, yeah. It, yeah. It's definitely on the Highland side of things more than the for sure. Isla side for of sure. things. But then having its own profile within that. Yeah. So I think as we explore more, we'll begin to understand. But this is like this is the journey. This is the fun part. Is yeah. is and again, we're only working within this tiny little section of this one bog that's yeah. forty acres of the more than hundred you know different bogs in Washington State that create all of this with all the different things that grow in it. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's like literally the complexity is overwhelming. You know. Yeah. So. 
what does Washington State Pete taste like? It's early days. It's early. Yeah, you'd said it. It's it's, it's being written. But this right is it. Now, but yeah. this is the first time. You know, to the mm. best of my knowledge, and maybe somebody will correct me one day. But to the best of my knowledge, this the first batch of peated malt we made with Skadra Valley Malting in January 2016 was the first batch of peated malt ever made in America. Mm-hmm. You know. Wow. So that's that's cool. It's where there's a lot of learning along the way. Yep. A lot of learning. So for future batches of malted barley and the future distillations you have done i'm using 2012 as an anchor point here and so as you've gone you know through this process have you been pulling from different parts of the bog have you been exploring or have you been using uh, a batch of malted of peated barley from one run of Pete. No, we have, uh, I mean, no, it's mostly coming from one area of the uh-huh. bog, mm-hmm. but at the moment that has been less of a concern than just trying to get a consistent phenolic level, frankly. Oh, okay. So, okay. and trying to understand the mechanics of, uh, of how that's supposed to work because sure. the way that stuff is burning in our bogs is, is different or burning from our bogs to Skagit Valley malting is different. Um, so how much, you know, the, the variability of the peat makes a difference there is still a bit of an unknown because mm. we've changed a lot of other variables. We mm. changed the the technique, the equipment used to smoke the peat three times. Okay. And it's been refined and it's getting better and better and better okay. and more consistent. Um, you know, but at the moment that is probably the next thing to explore is like <laughs> trying to be precise about where stuff is harvested from and, and honestly just trying to understand the composition of it, yeah. but you don't have those those experts that can translate it into this is the phenolic content that would be created. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of uh, phenolic content, you mentioned it's fifteen ppm. Is that is that on the barley or is that after? That's is, on is the that, barley. That's on the barley. Have you tested what the phenolic content is after maturation prior to no. bottling? Okay. I feel like anytime people. Talk about oh, phenolic. Content. They're always talking about. They're always barley. talking about absolutely. barley, but I. I but you're I do, a nerd, <laughs> sir. <laughs> well, I, yes, <laughs> I do think about it quite often, um, and there's one particular bottling that always comes to mind, and it was by Glenn Murray, and this was released maybe 10, 12 years ago at this point, and they had done a trial run on peated, and there was a two-year-old spirit they released, and on the ticket it said a little like neck tag, I should say. It said uh, barley was 40 ppm, and then final products was 14 ppm. And I just, I always thought that was interesting, and there's not a lot of people who are really talking about that, so I was just curious where you rated your... I think the general rule of thumb is that you lose about half from whatever is on the barley into the distillate, and then you lose more as it matures. So that sounds right. But the, the other trick that nobody really wants to talk about is like, when we say we measure phenolic content, what exactly do we mean? Because yeah. there are different types of phenolics. Ooh. And because, <laughs> See, you can yeah. always trust this guy. <laughs> always, always. So it's like, I mean, that's the hard part is, is and again, you're when we're dealing with people in the US, so like, mm. we want to measure the phenolic content of malt, and they go, you want to do what now? Like, because <laughs> it's just not a, you know. Yeah. So there's challenges that come with that stuff too. So, you know, again, super early days in the grand scheme of things, but you know, which sounds crazy to think about. I mean, we're returning to the oldest style of whiskey in the world, yeah. and it's 2023, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the fact that it's still so unknown and there's still so much to learn is fascinating. You know? Yeah. I had a follow-up question. Please. But I, okay. 
So the question that I have is going to tie itself somewhat to this this new category that's about to be, like, hopefully, fingers crossed, birthed, American single malt whiskey. And you as American single malt producers and, and plenty of others here in the U.S. are building this this catalog of, of whiskeys, different distilleries from all around the country, building all these kinds of, of single malts for people to enjoy, yet it's not yet a category. And now you're throwing on peated into this. And I'm curious, do you feel that you've, you've created this fan base that's going to follow you along the way and really buy into this and go for edition two, edition three, edition four organically? That's part one. And part two, do you think if American Single Mall is codified as a category, then that opens up new doors potentially to, to other drinkers? Is, is that going to make the difference as you continue to evolve your whiskeys? I think for us, we are full speed ahead on making our style of single malt category recognition notwithstanding. Yeah. Now, when we're doing things that are very... Heady, you know, when you talk about new types of peat or different varieties of barley and different forms of agriculture, mm. you know, a lot of that stuff is new no matter who you are as a mm. whiskey drinker, you know. Um, and so that's not limited to people in America. That's that's a global thing. And we connect with people on a global level about yeah, sure. that. But not all of our products are about those things. You know, you can have our flagship whiskey and you can drink it and you could just be, you know. You could just say it's yummy, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. and that's enough, you know, and I really yeah. do mean that, you know, yeah. I think that's yeah. a really important thing to be able to bring new people that's in. And point. so it's yeah. important for us as whiskey makers, even if we could do something where it was just limited edition releases that nobody had ever done before, like that's where having a flagship product is always so nice that again, you can anchor, mm -hmm. it's an anchor point that somebody can attach yeah. to and, and get in and, and find something familiar and that's important, especially as the category comes around. Because this, you know, some people will, they know what peated whiskey is. Yeah. A lot of people know what peated whiskey is. But for a lot of people who are entering the category of single malt for the first time and no American whiskeys, no bourbons, no mm. rye, you know, and it's, is this too big of a jump when we're talking about Northwest peat? I don't know. I don't think it is necessarily. Yeah. But for the people who, you know, are just really kind of approaching whiskey for the first time, and they, you know, they're not even familiar with what's in bourbon necessarily. You know, mm. there's a lot of people like that. And more people entering the category is good. You know, to have something that's very approachable, I think, is totally fine. Agreed, 100%. Cheers. I'm curious on a, a follow-up from where our conversation was the last time we, we sat down together. Sadly, at a distance, seeing you in person is much more enjoyable. <laughs> uh, being in the rack house with you, much more enjoyable. And we were talking last time about your use of um, sherry, like, you know, sherry casks coming in from Spain seemed like it was going the way of the dodo. And we talked about, you know, Scottish peated barley going the way of the dodo. And you were going to bring that in-house, by which I mean Skagit Valley and, and where we are. Is there a concerted effort to bring everything in-house is that an impossible goal? Are you looking to limit? You know, we've, we've talked about some European wine this afternoon, and those types of casts are coming in. Overall, 
What's what's your goal and, and how much would you like to bring in-house? I think the, the core goal for us is to try to make a whiskey that is reflective of us being here in the Pacific Northwest. And for most of our actions to be reflective of that goal. That doesn't mean that everything has to be that <laughs> right, way. Right. You know, it's, right. it's uh, you know, getting in a few European wine casks or some rum casks or whatever it is, you know, that's just part of the whiskey industry. And there's just a lot of fun in frankly doing stuff like that. Yeah, that sure. doesn't mm-hmm. have to be mm-hmm. ideologically motivated. Mm-hmm. You know, you can just, you fill a cool cask from somewhere, you know, that's fun to do. But I think in general, as Westland carves out its place in the world, we need to we need to try to just lean into who we are, you know, mm-hmm. in, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's ways to do that that are harder to do and away from the norm. I mean, that's where we started with sherry casks because we could source sherry casks in the beginning. Mm. We could source the Scottish peter malt. But if we would have stayed that way, we never would have created what is now Solom. We yeah. never would have created yeah. Gariana. We never would have created oh, Calera. You know, yeah. all of those things were deliberate, you know, jumps into let's make the Pacific Northwest raw ingredients work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I like about Westland. You know, I, I think that's that's important. So, again, I like having a little bit of balance there. Most of what we do when it comes to serious innovation should be about furthering this idea of making single malt in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean we can't pick up a, a fun, cool cast from time to time. Nice. Yeah. Uh, that's beautifully said. I appreciate you saying that. For the benefit of our, our listeners, obviously, we've spoken to you about Westland, you know, a number of times. It's been lovely. If someone is hearing about Westland for the first time, and we're sitting here talking about Solom, and you're throwing around Kaleri and the Outpost series. Kaleri. <laughs> Bless you. And, <laughs> and the flagship. Could you just articulate the line for a new consumer to, to go in search of? Yeah, so we've had three core range whiskeys for a while. We had a whiskey called American Oak, a whiskey called Sherrywood, and a whiskey called Peated for a while. Uh, Sherrywood with um, Oloroso and PX uh, sherry casks, um, Peated with Scottish peat, that's important to note. Uh, and then our American Oak, which contained a lot of our core ideas, dark roasted malts, brewer's yeast, new American mm. Oak. And now we've moved to a singular entry point with a new flagship single malt. And it's just Westland American single malt. We just call it our flagship Mm-hmm. And the idea with that is we've been working so much behind the scenes for so long on these different, uh, I mean, all sorts of different things, whether it's the local peat, whether it's Gary Oak. And we talked about earlier today where 60% of the malt we're sourcing is now off of the commodity grain mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. So at some point, that changes how your lineup works. And we've been doing it for a long time. This is the trick is we've been, you know, been filling Gary Oak since 2011. We've been uh, distilling, you know, this stuff, the local peat since 2016, mm. the different barley varieties since 2014. So the idea was let's go to a singular entry point, our new flagship single malt. It's priced at, you know, $59.99. It's, it's especially these days is pretty approachable in terms <laughs> yeah. of price points. Yeah. Um, and then we have sure. these three whiskeys we call the Outpost Range, and they're very focused on one ingredient in single malt. Colere, very focused on barley varietal flavor. Solum, all about this local peat. And Gariana, named for the Quercus Gariana oak species that only grows in the Pacific Northwest. And so each edition focusing on one of those. So at each time, at any given time of year, we'll focus on one. Gariana in the fall, Solum in the winter, where we are now. Colera in the spring. 
And on top of that, we have more limited editions coming. We have more single casks that we're releasing. Mm -hmm. We've got a couple of other limited edition projects in the works that will be out in 2024. So the idea here is that anybody anywhere should be able to find our flagship whiskey. If Mm -hmm. you can find decent single malt, good retailer, good bar, you should be able to find Westland there. Um, But then we build on top of that with the outpost range and and sell more limited editions to people who want to buy it, which is a lot of people. Mm. Sure, sure. Nice. Um, I, I want to rewind the conversation back a little bit because, Jason, I, li- I like that you brought this up and then you, you reinforced it. We're going um, back to Kalmanur. What? Kalmanur. Kalmanur. Back, back to the Kalmanur and uh, flock of seagulls. Yeah. Understood. Um, so you had mentioned at this point you're, you're about 60% of your overall production is off of the commodity. What did you call it? Off of the commodity grain system. The commodity grain system. And you're, with your goal to be 100% off the commodity grain system, I would love for you to clarify what the commodity grain system is for our <laughs> listeners and, and, and what you are looking to do, what you have been doing to get off of that. Yeah. Well, don't fall asleep, dear listener. This is, <laughs> this is, this is actually exciting stuff. No, seriously. I mean, the commodity grain system. So every drop of delicious Scottish single malt that you've ever drank is made out of one barley. Really, it's like two or three, but it's all just whatever is the highest yielding variety of barley that's chosen for any given time in the UK. So mm-hmm. basically now it's concerto or, or optic. Um, and in bourbon, it's the same. It's whatever the highest yielding variety of, of, corn is, of yellow yeah. corn is. Uh, that is how the grain system works in the Western world. Basically they are Mm -hmm. commodities. They are like oil or steel, you know, corn is bought and traded on the Chicago exchange. Barley is not, but it's the same core idea. And that idea is that the big, all the big interests, the biggest farmers, the biggest maltsters, the biggest um, brewers in America will say, let's pick this type of barley or these few types of barley that all taste exactly the same so that if I'm growing barley in Washington state and somebody's growing barley in South Dakota or Colorado or Wisconsin, Mm. that barley is all the same variety. So just like, it's like everybody was planting Merlot as a wine and it would always taste exactly the same. So again, to use the wine comparison, imagine if every winemaker in America grew exactly the same variety of wine grape, Merlot, let's say, yeah. and and had to grow it the same way. And then the processors would blend all of those wine grapes together mm-hmm. so that it all tasted the same. Like that is status quo today. That is what the commodity grain system is. And that's good at what it does, which is to create something that tastes consistent because Budweiser needs to taste like Budweiser. Mm-hmm. So there's value in that. Don't get me wrong. But what we're trying to do is saying we're, we're trying to make, we're not trying to make like the most efficient like consistent commodity whiskey, we're trying to make something that is differentiated and we mm. want to show people things that they've never experienced before. Mm-hmm. Um, even ourselves, like most selfishly, like we want to taste really interesting whiskey. So when you do that, you have to go what we call off the commodity system. So there's an approved list of things for farmers to grow in America. If a farmer grows that variety, they're guaranteed to be able to sell it so long as it has all the right specifications for starch and size. And again, there's value and there's safety in that. Yeah, sure. But we say, no, we want a crazy purple variety of barley, crazy purple variety of barley that has these amazing flavors. You have to work directly with farmers 
and maltsters to be able to do that and with grain breeders to be able mm -hmm. to do that. So when we say we're going completely off of the commodity system and it's by 2025, that's the goal. Wow. Is we have to have these entire networks built up to be wow. able to do it and to jump off. Um, and the interesting part about that, you know, people, not that this could go way down a certain rabbit hole, but like there's a big, as we all know, big urban and rural divide in America. People are distanced from each other. People are distanced from their food and, mm -hmm. and all what this does when you, commodities, you don't, if you're a farmer, you don't need to know. In fact, you can't know who you're selling it to because the grain goes to a grain elevator, it gets blended, it gets lost. It goes to who knows what malting company wow. and it gets sold to who knows, like everybody's disconnected. As soon as you, you go away from commodities, the farmer and the maltster and the distiller or the brewer, they all need to know each other, trust each other, work together. Mm -hmm. huh. And that the bridging of that, Man. of community, of, of, of rural, of raw ingredients to finish good, I think is a really, really powerful thing. Mm -hmm. That's part of, to me, you know, what, what motivates me behind it, not just the flavor that's coming out of it, but also like, whoa, like this is, <laughs> this is probably the way that agriculture should be. Yeah. We're much stronger for it. We're a much stronger community for it. Yeah, excellent. That's, that was the Urim preview episode with uh, <laughs> Susanna Skyver Barton, right? Yeah. Is talking about grain, agriculture, communities, and how do we build strong mm. and take care of the environment, cut down carbon footprints. This is this is all of it. This is holistically ho holistically sustainable. Holistically you look, sustainable. You look at people, you look at environment, and you look at flavor. All those things come together. Yeah, systems, entire systems. Yeah. I know we're down a rabbit hole. Hey, uh, how scalable is that? The issue is not scalability, it's replicability. So what you want to be able to do is our local grain economy, what we call regional grain economies, is going to be different than the regional grain economy of, of New York ah, or of the Southeast. Okay. But again, this, mm -hmm. is where, and this, this is where it becomes much more beautiful in that what we do here in Skagit, we're sitting down here in Skagit, this is different from the regional grain economy that we also participate in, in the Palouse, which is on the other side of Washington State. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And those two things are different, but they're both, you know, producing barley, which will both go into single malt, and they both have their peculiarities about community and about sustainability and all these other things, let alone sourcing rye from New England or from yeah. Pennsylvania or wherever, mm -hmm. you know, let alone sourcing corn from the, from the Southeast, you know, and all of a sudden you can do that very efficiently. Like the barley varieties we're developing here yield more in the field mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they're suited to this environment. When they choose a commodity variety to grow across 2,000 miles, it ha it's the master of none, you know? Yeah. It has to grow moderately well across all the space, but it's not really great at any of it. Mm -hmm. Whereas here, you find one that really thrives here. It can thrive here under organic conditions, regenerative conditions. It yields more per acre, way more per acre, uh, and you can do it organically, and you can have all of this flavor. And so you replicate those systems, and all of a sudden you have more actually out of the whole system wow. as a total. But it's just that it's differentiated. Yeah. But again, as whiskey like lovers, first yep, and yep. foremost, yep. Yep. That's what we want, isn't it? We want to be experiencing different styles of whiskey yes. from different parts of the world. And so, you know, that's, you know, that's what we should be shooting for. Yeah. Well, and that was the conversation with David Thompson at Spirit oh, of yeah. Yorkshire. Oh, yeah, Spirit of Yorkshire. Yeah. Where he was saying going from conventional means to sustainable uh, means, yes, you had a drop in yield that first year. By year five, their yields were superior to where they had been with conventional agriculture. And I think that's such a strong selling point 
for making changes. And so for you to be saying, you know, yields get higher. Like, there's a reason. If you just want a fiscal reason to do that or to do this, that's it right there, right? Like, your yields will be stronger. The only thing that this type of, of agricultural system doesn't benefit is a centralized economy. Sure. You know, and that's, you know, we... we Went from, you know, our partners at the Bread Lab talk about this all the time. We went from having 25,000 flour mills in this country to less than 300, you know, in in 100 years' time. Yeah. And, you know, that benefits. And and of those less than 300, you know, 80% of them are two companies, Mm -hmm. you know. And so those, that's who benefits from this big, you know, system. And again, there is some value in that for, Mm -hmm. for somebody. Mm -hmm. But it's usually not the communities that are growing it. It's usually not in terms of nutrition or sustainability yeah, sure. or in terms of flavor. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. You hear you hear it over and over again. The farmers simply are not making the money that they should be making yeah, off ridiculous. of the system it's that ridiculous. they're in. Many of the times we speak with you. <laughs> we're always talking about projects. I'm so I'm so nervous right now. <laughs> make a great face. As you should be. As you should be. <laughs> but but to, to get us out of here, we, we spend so much time talking projects with you, casts with you. Like I was saying earlier, we've been in the rack house with you and, and explored a whole bunch of things. Hugely exciting. What are you excited about as you go through the rest of this 23 and start looking into, into next year? About Westland or in general? Hey, buddy, you, whatever you want to tell me. <laughs> I mean, we can put a curtain between us. You can say whatever you need to say. <laughs> I, th- I think I would like to put a, yeah, that would be nice. Um, I, th- for me, the most exciting thing has to be the category recognition for American single malt. I mean, okay. we've, we've been working on it for, for so long and we've, you know, invested a lot of time in it. And I've been, I've told a lot of people it's, it's not the end, it's the beginning. It's Absolutely. getting, it's, it's getting to the starting yeah. line there. Absolutely. But you know, I'm su- I haven't tasted any of it yet, but I'm super excited to see Jack Daniels entering the category of, mm. of single mm-hmm. malt. It's huge. Um, it really yeah, is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And um, so just to be able to see what happens there as, as the official starting point, I think, to the race in American mm-hmm. single malt, there's 250 distilleries now making it, um, you know, but now we're at this point where with Solon being released, we're we've kind of fleshed out the big three kind of sources of innovation for us too. Mm-hmm. So now, you know, we've, we've always said this, this whiskey's coming, this whiskey's coming and it's been so like, <laughs> Oh my God, I cannot even tell you guys how much I've anticipated being ready to sell this whiskey and give it to people. So, so now we're there Yeah, and just to be able to show stuff like that. We've got, you know, Garyana's coming out and different varieties of barley with Colere and more single casks. It's just, there's a lot of exciting stuff going on for, for Westland, I think, at this point. Uh, as far as everybody else goes, I don't know, I'm kind of afraid to anticipate <laughs> 2023 anymore. <laughs> I didn't feel like that got us collectively in trouble in 2020, 2021, 2022. So yeah, it's a dangerous uh, game. Yeah. Uh, I do have to say, as you're mentioning uh, Garyana, we had the seventh edition. Uh, last weekend, and it was fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And and as a group, we just kind of kept returning to it yeah. and talking about well, developing this and that. And such a drinker, such a wonderful little um, dram to sit with and enjoy and evolve in the glass. So mm-hmm. serious kudos on seventh edition Garyana. Thank you very much. Just freshly released. And kudos. I know you've been waiting. Maybe since 2012, but surely since 2016 for for Solom, and this is 
it's a remarkable whiskey. So oh, really well much. done to you. Well done to your team. It's nice to be drinking it with you. Thank you very much. It's very nice to share it with you guys. Cheers. Come on. Let's cheers, cheers out of that. There we go. The same way we entered. Cheers. Sincere thanks to, to Matt for dedicating an entire day to us mm -hmm. that also culminated with the interview we've just listened to. As you said, as we went into the interview, thanks to Anna for making time for us. She was incredible as well and, and organizing it all. And then Shane, who was in the warehouse with us, popping bungs, letting us make requests of things to taste. It was, it was an absolutely remarkable day. And as we said, getting to share it with Jess and Elijah and Sweet Scott, who mm -hmm. didn't get to chime in a lot on the mailbag episode, but he was most definitely there with us. And we had an absolute blast together. Um, Solom, we, we have to get our bottles. We have oh, to be on top to. of this. Delicious stuff. Absolutely delicious stuff. Right. And, and again, listening to how it came together, listening to Westland's commitment to people and place. Mm -hmm. it, it's so exciting and, and one of our absolutely best collaborations over this past decade you know, together. It, it, it's, it's so interesting. Everything that was talked about, not just in this episode, but over the years with Westland, if you're from an outside perspective and they were anybody else, you'd say, oh, that's some good marketing mumbo jumbo. <laughs> but none of it is. They're they're living it. They're 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 actively doing the things that they yeah. say they're doing and it's not for sake of marketing. It's for sake of how can we do things different? How can we create our own sense of place and and make things from our place and and it's it Well, how can we do it right? Deal. How can we do it right? Yeah. They, oh, I like that. How can we do it right? Right. Yeah. Right. And I, and I think for the concern that a number of us had with the Remy purchase was, oh boy, Remy now owns this. What are they going to do? Mm -hmm. And Remy has stood back and they've let Matt Hoffman be Matt Hoffman. The original vision of Westland has been allowed to flourish. Mm -hmm. And you know, we do this from time to time. I take my hat off to Remy. And I say, well done, recognizing that you had a good thing on your hands and you continue to let it be. <laughs> Look at their work yeah. with Brooke Laddie. They, they've, yeah. they've done similar good work with Brooke Laddie, letting the team get on with it, taking a step back. So, yeah, kudos. Kudos as that goes around the place and, and kudos to Matt and the team. They, they remain amongst our favorites. Speaking of Jess, she was on site, beside herself with excitement, and we're going to wake up the paper boy, and she's going to be beside herself with another round of excitement as well. Does that mean there's going to be two Jesses? <laughs> if only the world had two Jessies in it, it would be a much better place. History, history, read all about it, life story of Playboy Penny, history. 
Jess, what's it like to ride on the back of the Paperboy's BMX bike as you go down the street, <laughs> throwing newspapers at everybody, telling them about rich millionaires and everything? And then, you, what's the Paperboy like? Little 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 Tommy Tommy Newstown. Tommy Tommy Newstown. Tommy Tommy uh, Newstown is his name. He's a, he's a first terrible. Terrible cyclist. I, we nearly died straight under a bus. I have a terrible aim. There's some really angry people with newspapers in places that they shouldn't have newspapers. Um, All right. I, so don't ever invite me to do that again. It was difficult. Can we just deliver things by Uber next time instead? <laughs> Uber. Oh, yeah. You know you're talking to millennial when. <laughs> Ooh, there's some shade. That's some fresh yeah. shade. Yeah. Yeah, Jess will be the one telling future generations my paper round was so difficult, I had to schedule my own Uber. Right? I did actually have a paper round, but unlike in the US where you're allowed to throw newspapers at people, you have to put it through the doors in the UK. Right. That was my paper round. Really? You couldn't just like toss it onto their front stoop or anything like that? We don't have many no. stoops. I've also wondered about that, because then you put your newspaper on very wet grass. I feel like... That I just wouldn't have washed in my house. You get like a. That's why it newspaper. comes in a plastic sleeve. Yeah, plastic oh. sleeve. Killing the planet one newspaper at a time. Well done, America. You're welcome. <laughs> so anyway, well, well now you've ingratiated <laughs> yourself to, our, to the audience. Well, that's that's two thirds of the audience have tuned out. That's good. How do we get rid of the last third? Uh, oh man, this paper boy is—he's—he's he's really sullied you, Jess. It's a very dramatic bike ride. It's been a long time since I've been on a BMX. So our listeners know, because we've been making this promise to them that, that we were going mm -hmm. to bring you on to the podcast because rest of the world, ROW, release number four has been imminent. But now we're at the point where it's not only imminent, it's been bottled. Like this shit is ready to go. And you mm -hmm. are the person on the ground you have all the details, and I would love for you to, to share the ins and outs of retail, sorry, of Rest of the World release number four. Maybe maybe focus on a couple that may be your favorites okay. in, the, in the grouping. I feel like this is suddenly an awful lot of pressure. Like, uh, oh, yeah. This has been 100%. so long, so long in the making that I kind of can't remember what we even started many years ago when I... Um, as we've now made it an official term, the global logistics situation uh, Indeed. began. Trademarked. And, and you're right. When you say I am on the ground, literally some days crying, just sometimes <laughs> excitement, sometimes not excitement. Uh, with the six, count them up, one, two, three, four, five, six. Mm -hmm. um, exciting things we have put into glass. Uh, that's we in the royal sense. I've actually not put anything physically into glass. Our lovely bottling hall have put things into glass. Uh, this they week, have. this week of time of recording, which is nearly the same time as the listeners are listening to this podcast. <laughs> it is March 17, which is why Joshua and I started the episode drinking Irish whiskey. Oh, we, never, we never actually told the listeners why we were drinking Irish whiskey, <laughs> just that we were. But it is March 17 this day. It's March. I think people can make the proper assumptions. Um, <laughs> listen, Jess, before you go on and before you finish, I would love for you, because you mentioned it a couple times, right? It we put whiskey into glass, but it wasn't us that put whiskey into glass. It was Claxons that put whiskey into glass. 
but not just any glass. So I, I really, I'd love for you to frame the whole thing, the whole kit and caboodle for us. I see what you did there. See what I did there? So keen, Things I do, stuff you see. So you, you set them up and I'll just miserably fail to take that <laughs> shot accurately. Um, uh, famous, uh, my my very famous Instagram uh, winding people up this week has been little tiny hyper zoomed in horrible pixelated uh, shots of the the image that I received from our lovely friends down in Dumfries with our new bottling range. So coming to a, a retail store somewhere near you, hopefully in the not too distant future, um, or, or straight into your eyeballs because you're looking at social media. Um, we have got a big change. I think it's the first big shake-up for quite a long time in the history of Single Cast Nation. Um, we have got some incredible new glass. Mm-hmm. By that, I mean not just we've recycled them out of the back of my shed. Uh, we've got some <laughs> new bottle shapes um, with very <laughs> fancy, if I may say so myself, uh, design that's been put onto the glass itself. Mm-hmm. Which means we've had a big shake-up with labels. Which, if I'm going to be honest with you, it's Friday. I'd, I don't ever want to think about labels again, at least not for a week. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got new labels. Not for a weekend. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, new labels, new glass, and a new bottle shape. Uh, we've got new capsules. And in a total um, hashtag revealing all the new things, we have switched from cork... Uh, tops on the bottles to screw caps which have got very fancy embossing on them that took many months of thinking about so I hope that everybody (laughs) as they merrily rip open the new capsule and immediately bin it responsibly considers that that took me eight months to get to get to um, having a thing you can put straight in the bin you're welcome Uh, and then we've got some very cool new tops so I am so excited about this packaging and I know that's quite unusual because when we talk about whiskey we're always saying it's not about the fancy packaging but in this case guys ROW is all about our fancy new packaging and before our American listeners write in, because I can feel several people reaching for their keyboards <laughs> and pens immediately, this is not just an ROW feature. It will be coming to the US. It's just that I got the privilege of having it before the rest of you. So, it's a, it is. wow. That's how, that's how I'm is. feeling with these sweeping statements. So, very cool new glassware. And when this podcast drops, I will finally be able to show people the picture that I received from Sue at our bottling hall. Thank you very much, Sue. It's a beautiful photograph, and I can't wait to show you mm-hmm. all the liquids. Again, this is great for an audio format. Look at the colors of these things. <laughs> so to be clear, because I can also hear keyboards getting warmed up and pens getting uh, decapped, is this is a retail move. So yeah. rest of the world retail and US retail mm-hmm. will be seeing new bottles, new livery, new capsules, all bespoke packaging. Mm-hmm. Our US online bottles labels will remain the same for the time being. Only uh, only one big change at a time. So. Yeah, exactly. Nobody started to get nervous then. about my, US my online. Heart going, I was very worried you were about to drop some other surprise announcement in the podcast as you two are willing to do on a frequent basis yeah. all the spoilers. It's better when you hear it when you're listening not when you're on with us yeah, recording we don't, it we don't drop it right. while you're with us we gotta wait until you know you're not with us 
Okay, well, that, that's good. I can I can live with this status quo. So, uh, yeah, very cool new packaging. I'm very excited about it. A couple of changes. So, obviously, we have got rid of the um, corks, and we've transitioned to very cool custom screw caps. We have also mm-hmm. got rid of the cardboard boxes. This is always a controversial mm-hmm. conversation when I talk to other people who bottle whiskeys. Uh, we've got rid of the boxes because we've got some really cool glassware that I want people to see and be able to grab on a shelf. And if we hide it in a box, I feel like the 700 million hours it's taken us to get this glass to this stage <laughs> will have been for nothing. Uh, and also, you can't, well said. you can't drink a box. It just goes in the bin. So, or recycling. Yeah, it's a bit wasteful, right? Yeah. Right. And I, I just think, you know, even the whiskeys in my house that come in boxes, I tend to display the bottles, not even the boxes. So, yeah, um, yeah. I'm looking at my shelves now. Yeah, Yeah. I can see both of you looking (laughs) approvingly. Okay, this is good. So, uh, yeah, very cool new packaging. Um, Check out the socials um, because I feel like I'm going to be sharing these pictures for a long time to come, probably to the point where you're like, could you give us some different content, please? And I'll be like, no, no, this is is what I do now, pictures of bottles. So, honestly, I I can't tell you how excited I am to get these into people's hands, even more so because I'm not allowed to show the pictures until this podcast drops. I, I'm excited. I'm looking at the upset picture quite a few while you're talking. On Instagram, it turns out <laughs> <laughs> it'll happen. They'll they'll be glad with the great reveal. So, so what is in these new bespoke bottles, Jess? Good. Um, okay, so we're following the same kind of pattern we've done for the other rest of the world releases. I want to kind of keep it simple for a while before I really start playing hard and fast like we do in the US. So, um, in this mix, we have got four single malts. We have one world whiskey and we have a rum. Mm-hmm. So, so far, so good. Mm-hmm. So far, so good. Uh, where should we start? Should we start with our... Uh, I've got all of these whiskies. I'm looking at them in front of me, and they look delicious. <laughs> um, we've got... Uh, maybe I should start with the ones... I've got two that I think we could have a little sample of, yeah. and I'll do a little teaser. Um, so I'll, I'll drop the four that are not the ones we're going to talk about. So we've got, um, in terms of malts, the liquid is a 12-year-old, and that has been in uh, French Oak Barrique which is a little bit unusual, but pretty cool. And I thought it'd be a, a fun mm-hmm. thing to add in, which means that our Ben Rinnis is 11. Indeed. And that's had a cheeky little finish, um, which is something we're playing with a little bit. Um, it's had a cheeky finish in a hyperactive, uh, first of all, sherry cask. So fans of the US nine-year-old Dalyuan, <laughs> this thing along, it's not uh-huh. quite that dark, but it, yeah, it surprised me because uh, it has gone from, it's even got a little bit more tan since we last took a sample, so I think that's quite fun. Um, we have also got uh, a Crofton Gear, so that's the um, fairly heavily peaty smoky from Loch Lomond, mm-hmm. and that's an 18 year old and a refill uh, hogshead, mm-hmm. so letting the spirit do a little bit more talking there than the wood. And then, then we've got our rum, which I am so this excited for. But it's probably going to get me banned from places where they speak Dutch because I cannot say the name of it properly, despite having a very ex- intense coaching session at Maltstock by some very patient Dutch friends. Ooh, now I want to hear... This is how I should pronounce yeah, it. How, 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 <laughs> how did Dutch. you think it was pronounced? Then what, what do you remember being told it... Sh- yeah. So I think I was kind yeah. of, I think I was kind of on the right okay. path, but it was the nuances mm. which I have failed to mm. retain from Maltstock. 
So sorry, Dutch speakers, listen away now. Um, I'm going to continue to call it an oiflet. Yeah, that's that's how I would pronounce it, oiflet. They they had a lot more kind of glottally sounds oh, in it. Yeah. Um, we were also in in house. We were calling it oigavolt rum, which I'm going to have to work really hard to undo. <laughs> or not? <laughs> now I'm going to pour that. <laughs> or not? I'd, I'd, I have a similar glitch. I once ran a tasting where. Um, Somebody referred to Kilhoman as Kickerman, and that stuck, and I really have to uh-huh. consciously unlink that. Anyway, so Iflop, and that is our um, one of the oldest rums I think we've bottled. It's a 24-year-old. Yeah, you've got me thinking now. To say it. No, it's a... Yeah. I don't think we've done if we have bottled an older no. rum than that. No, we've done... It's... We've done the 16-year-old Trinidadian rum. Um, that was so good. 18-year-old uh, Spanish rum. That's that, the one I was going to say. That, that, might, that mm-hmm. might be our oldest. We, we've got some Barbados rum in our warehouse that's 17-ish year old. But yeah, 20, yep. 23 years. There you go. That is our oldest rum. 24 years. Sorry. Four. Yeah, four. four. Uh, it is <laughs> delicious. Um, I was trying to explain to somebody where it sits along the scale. If you have like a Barbadian four square at one end, is this kind of soft and fruity really gentle tropical rum and then we've got like the big beastie coroni hamden at the other mm-hmm, end mm-hmm. i'd say it's shifting more towards that kind of heavy dirty fusily rum but it's not the full way mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. if you're maybe a bit of a rum skeptic and you're not sure you want to commit from going all those <laughs> lovely tropical four squareiness this is a an ad, i would say a safety adventure into something a bit more Technically heavy punching, but not you're not going full Jamaican funk. Yeah, this is a this is an adventure into the Amazonian rainforest with a guide who's not going to take you to the most yes. problematic zones. Yeah, he's not going to leave you on your own oh, defense. Yeah, so he's, you yeah, got but, a Sherpa, but for the Amazon forest. Okay. Yeah. There you go. So this is um this is a Guyanese rum from a distillery that no longer exists. Mm-hmm. So yeah, cracking as well. It's Absolutely delicious. Cracking. Very excited about bringing that. So that's our four that I am not going to talk about the colour of, which is my favourite thing you guys do on the podcast. Uh, so the colour is remarkable, though. I think you'll agree. The color <laughs> Just look at that colour, man. I've actually... So rich. I've picked the two pale ones to talk about. Because, uh. you know. uh, so I'm going to hop... Our first one that I want to talk about is our world whiskey in this release, which is um, Mac Mira, and it comes from mm-hmm. Sweden. Um, and this is kind of we um, we've just bottled one for the US online. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a different cask. This is in bourbon, uh, and this is a thirteen-year-old. So when Jason and I were sat thinking about these the other day, um, I have some friends who have casks from the distillery, but I've not seen an official release from the distillery with anything this age on it. So it's quite unusual in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, Very much. It so. came from our two-hundred-liter barrel. And like we discussed a little bit with the other ones, it had a suspiciously high fill level in the barrel, but we've lost a lot of ABV because the angels in Sweden are very greedy. So, And that's because this cask, like our one that we did for the one online, was matured in the Bodus mine. So that's uh, underground and it's got a high level of humidity there. They used to use the warehouse for growing mushrooms. So that kind of helps <laughs> in your mind create a little Tells bit. a story, doesn't it? There's, there's no <laughs> mushrooms on these casks. Don't worry, the, the mushrooms are no longer there. But it's got that Did kind of humidity this, dankness. Yeah. Did so the psilocybin get in through the wood <laughs> into the spirit itself? 
Yeah, no. Funnily enough, um, okay. listeners no, will not detect any sort of mushroomy aromas. <laughs> it's very pale. It doesn't look like a cream of mushroom soup. It's not a... Um, yeah, that, that was a... I'm worried now. People, Listeners are going to write in and be like, you're right, this one does taste like a mushroom. It doesn't. It's all in your yeah, mind. Yeah, no, it's not dank. No, It's not dank at all. Um, yeah, so this um, had lost basically not a lot of liquid and it's 13 years underground but quite a lot of abv so the natural cask strength on this was 48.5 so Mm -hmm. that's the lowest in our release and i think our american one was also under 50 percent off the top of my head oh it was was definitely under 50 yep so i always think that's quite interesting when you have casks that are not very old and they've come down quite low in abv um, it, something has happened there and that's always an interesting talking point to me so that's why we're underground in a mine losing not liquid but alcohol and it's um, yeah this is a fun little number yeah and it sets up the difference you're busy there talking about the one we bottled for US online that was the the new charred oak yeah. so a bit more wood presence in the one that came to the US here when you've got the the ex-bourbon influence do you find the macmira spirit shining through more in this one i think so this is very um i picked this because it was very typical macmira to me um, that has aged out a little bit i know this probably is psychological but i i get a lot of kind of baked good cinnamon bun type things mm. out of this <laughs> even when i'm not thinking about cinnamon buns which let's be honest is most of the time um that's <laughs> i think some of that may or i would like to explain it out in my head as um the yeast that is used in the production of macmira is the same as um, is used in commercial bakeries and home bakeries all over Sweden. You can buy this yeast here in the UK as well. I can make my own baked delicious goodies using exactly the same stuff. So in my head, I wonder if that maybe influences it. We've seen lots mm. of distilleries doing work with different types of yeast mm. um, and how that affects yield and aromas and textures in the liquid. And I, I feel like that very much is at play here too. Um, it's a much kind of softer spirit, I think. And at 13 years mm-hmm, old, yeah. I think it's mellowed out really nicely. That kind of like aggressive spiritiness that you can sometimes get in young whiskies has mellowed out really nicely. It's, it's just got a really nice kind of warming spice to it, which, yeah, again, gets you thinking about being in a bakery. And our tasting notes when we wrote them were definitely heavily influenced by that. Really, really quickly while we're on the, the subject of Macmira and I'll just say this very quickly. I got an email from a a U.S.-based nation member, a guy who's been with us since the beginning. You'll recognize his name, Jason, and so would you, Jess, I think, Uh, Dana Simon. Oh, yeah, Yeah. very much so. And he is a single malt scotch whiskey guy. That's what he likes. When we release our bourbons and our rice, he's like, yeah, I appreciate that you do that, but that's not my bag. (laughs) And... um, He'd reached out asking, you know, what I thought of the MacMira. Would would he like it? And I said, please pick it up. If you don't like it, that's 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 fine. You know, let, let me know, and I'll take the bottle off your hands. Kind of kind of situation. <laughs> he wrote in uh, last week, saying, and this was interesting. He said, this MacMira is unlike any other Scotch I've had before. It's just blowing my mind <laughs> with all of these flavors and. And what was interesting about that is I responded saying, you know, I'm, I'm glad you like it as much as you do. Your comment reminds me of, of my first experience with a world single malt. And, and you revert back to calling it a scotch because single malt scotch, that's just a thing. 
And I said, what you've just done is you've discovered the beauties of world whiskey and you've tasted something Scotland can't do. And this is what Sweden does. And if you like that, Check out what India is doing. Check out what Israel is doing. Check mm, out what these people nice. are doing. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and and he's had this other stuff. You know, he's had Yamazakis and, and things like that. But but I think through the course of that conversation, you know, I think something clicked with him. And so if anybody else is curious about world single malts, I mean, single malt is single malt. Getting it from other distilleries around the world allows you to to discover flavors you wouldn't find in your favorite country's single malt, if you will. So, right, this is one of the reasons that we, we do That's this. great to hear. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Really cool. I was going to ask I you... Think that's, go on, Jess. I was just going to say that I think that just um, explains as well the advantage of, you know, working and getting to try um, casks that have been picked by independent bottlers. You know, if you like the flavors and then maybe the palate influences that we let guide us when we're picking casks then maybe it's a slightly i'm going to say an inverted commas like a safer bet to pick a world whiskey that we've picked and the basis that if you're enjoying the other whiskeys that we like yeah there's a good chance that we've picked one from somewhere that may a territory you're not familiar with that you may also like to right we we can be the amazonian guide uh, making sure that you get to the right whiskey spots. That's what we're all about here. Um, I, I was going to ask you, just as I, I saw you tasting it again there, for that 48%, and that's natural cast strength, where's the texture at, being a, a representative texture guy? Um Oh, I've just realized it says 47 so we've dropped an even further 1%. Um, I think... Uh, the the texture is there. It's funny, and that's I get that again with these whiskies that have naturally dropped their ABV. I don't think feel like in my head they feel like whiskies that have been watered down. You know, if you you taste a whiskey and it's been brought down to forty six, forty seven like this, I get a very different texture experience than one that has naturally come to that point. I had the same with our Aberfeldy in one of the yeah. earlier RW releases. It's got tons going on on the palate. It doesn't feel like a thin, lower-strength whiskey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think because it's brought itself to that conclusion. And again, I'm not a scientist. I'm sure there'll be plenty of people listening to the podcast who can tell me scientifically why I may feel that way. Um, it's not thin at all. It's got a lovely kind of rich mouth-coating oiliness to it, which is surprising to me because I don't really associate McMira as being particularly oily. Mm. Um but we definitely got notes of kind of like a linseed oil, I think, when we were talking about what mm, we were mm-hmm. uh, drinking. And it's not all sweet. It's not all the bakery goodies. There is a touch of kind of like aniseedy, something slightly more savory mm. at the back of it. Mm-hmm. So if you maybe think, oh, this is starting to sound like a very sweet and jammy whiskey, I, I don't think it is. It does a, It does a trip through everything, and it comes back to this lovely kind of like stewed fruitiness. But it, yeah, it's got this kind of... Sawn timber, aniseed bite at the end. I I think you and I had written something along the lines of like, take it to the forest and drink it. You know, very kind of, that could work in Sweden, but we could also be right back in the Pacific Northwest in your flannel shirt with an axe. Uh No, something else. So, yeah. Linking us all the way back. Yeah, yeah, look at me doing that. 
Yeah. Should we talk about the color of this? I'd say it's quite golden. <laughs> sort of like, um... I, I was going to say, boy, it sounds delicious, but all three of us selected this cask in concert, yeah. so we know it is delicious. It's just been mm. time has passed between the selection and the movement and Correct. the bottling and yeah. the bespoke bottles yeah. and the labeling. And now the eventual release. We're getting ever closer, and ever closer. Now we're just putting our bottles in the hands of the transport gods. Um, yeah, th there is a lovely sweetness to it, but I, I think it's got this kind of a little bit of sharpness just that stops it becoming too sweet and jammy mm. and cakey. Mm -hmm. mm. That it's sounds funny, like I've, us. I've not tried this. Yeah, I've not tried the sample for a little bit and I'd, I really genuinely really enjoy this and I was very excited to go and see the distillery <laughs> some time ago now. Uh, when I was there? October 2021. So it's a while since I went to the distillery wow, um, and I just had an absolute blast and I really thinking when I drink this sample, I feel like I could be in the top of their um, beautiful vertical gravity distillery looking out across the mm. forest up in Yavla. Mm. I, I really do feel like I could be there when I'm drinking it. So um, on behalf of the tourist board of Sweden, I would employ you if you're in Sweden. It's, it's well worth a trek up there. They do a great lunch um, and they'll be very happy to show you around. It's a really beautiful out in the forest. Um, and it makes a lot of sense when you drink the whiskey too, I think. Um, but it is... Yeah, I'm really pleased with this, and I think people are going to really like it. Nice. And I think that's something we try to nail with our selections, is we're trying to transport drinkers to distilleries, mm. right? We mm -hmm. want you to get the sense of what it was like when we were there. Josh and I remain jealous. We haven't been to Macmira yet. <laughs> nope. But, but knowing how you talk about it, seeing your photos... Like it's kind of like, okay, we're a little step closer, a little step closer. So if we can bring drinkers to a distillery through taste and experience, we've made a good selection and I'm, I'm excited about that. McMira, you mentioned there being a second one up for a tasting. There is. So um, we're going to fling ourselves far, far away from Sweden, put down your Ikea bags and your flat packs and your Allen keys uh, and come with me on a journey through Speyside. I'm going to get banned from Sweden. Allen keys. And, <laughs> those and your clogs. Um, I did a tasting for the Hip Flask Whiskey Club here in Glasgow um, during lockdown. It was still on Zoom and they created me the most beautiful picture of me dressed in a a Swedish outfit with meatballs, Volvos, clogs. The if you ask me nicely, I'll share the picture. Oh, hey. gosh, yes. <laughs> um, sounds amazing. Yeah, maybe I, we'll put that as a little somewhere. Um, so, yeah, my second one that I want to uh, bring to the listeners' ears is our lovely Longmorn. Um, so, we're right back in the heart of Speyside. Um, I really wanted to highlight this because I don't think you see a lot or enough, to my mind, of independently bottled Longmorn. And this is a particularly delicious one. Again, um, we're in refill bourbon here, so we haven't got um, anything particularly outlandish on the go or unusual like our French oak with the Linkwood. Um, I just think this is a great example of really solid, delicious spirit mm -hmm. put in a cask that just lets it age out and do the talking. Um, so here we've got a 23-year-old, so it's our second oldest in the release. Only the rum is older. Um, and this is my, what I like to call the kind of jewel in the crown of the release, mm. um, which means it's uh, a little bit pricier, but it is also a single cask, 23-year-old Longmorn. So yeah. that shouldn't come as a surprise, I think, to whiskey it shoppers amongst us. certainly should not, no. <laughs> yeah, you, you, don't, you don't see a lot of well-aged Longmorn uh, out these no. days. Uh, Jason and Jess, do you, do you remember your first Longmorn? 
Oh, you always. I remember my first Longmorn visit to the distillery. Uh-huh. I'll tell you that much. I do too. It's a. Uh, it was a special, special trip. I usually just drive past, going in those trees. That's uh, that's <laughs> <laughs> Which is partly why my trip was so special because I get to go through those trees to that distillery. I was like, oh, it is real. There is a real distillery behind here, like people have been saying you, for years. Did you think it was an elaborate ruse? <laughs> I, I did. I was like, like all the water treatment plants behind trees. One of the things that, yeah. I, that I love about Longmorn, especially Longmorn in Bourbon, especially Longmorn in Bourbon at a decent age, is you're getting every bit of that distillery. You're getting every mm-hmm. bit of the, the beauty of that distillate coming through. And, and you know, sometimes as independent bottlers, we're showing people an unusual side of a distillery. And sometimes we're showing them exactly why that distillery is, is so great for doing something that's typical of their style, but yet um, uh, a wonderful example of their typical style, which which I really love about this one. Yep, agreed wholeheartedly. This, this bottling is definitely classic long mom. We've mm. not done anything funny here. We've it not is. done any um, re-racking to try and uh, direct the spirit towards something else. We've just let this do, you know, what it what it was. Um, and I I think it's just a really delicious. Again, we've got a really nice balance. I think here of. Um, the kind of there's a sweetness, but we haven't gone too far into the jammy playing around. I think as well because it's bourbon. Um, we've got a kind of like like some sort of weird mixtures of like herbals and sort of chamomile tea. I think mm. I seem to recall when we wrote the tasting notes of this. But um, there's a little pepperiness at the end that just kind of pings off your tongue mm-hmm. as you swallow it, and it it kind of really rounds the whole thing off. It's yeah. I, I think this is one of the, it reminds me of one of the reasons why I love Scotch whiskey in particular, because we can have, you know, young and punchy and playful malts, but you can also get the chance, like in this bottle, to appreciate something a bit older that's had, that's taken its time and has uh, rounded itself out a little bit. And it's, you know, nothing is overwhelming here. It's got a really lovely kind of rounded um, collection of subtle notes. This is a really fun whiskey to sit and try for a while. This is definitely a, a mm-hmm. slow sipper mm-hmm. of a whiskey. This is not a quick dram and head out the door type yeah. whiskey. Um, you've got that kind of you know lovely um, kind of patisserie bakery notes here too. But this, yeah, this this cracked pepper that when I came back to it when we were writing it up and taking samples, I just kept coming back to this yeah black pepper that's just. A little bit zingy. Mm. Also, a really a noble whiskey. I think I would like to call it. That's well said. A a noble whiskey that is the jewel in the crown. Listen to this. This is pro level today. I like hearing about this black pepper note because it tells me that the cask, even at refill, still had an influence. Right? Something was still coming through. It then suggests to me that you could have some of that wood framing on flavors and textures. So you don't have an older kind of flaccid Scotch whiskey here. Mm-hmm. Like there's still structure to it. Makes me very happy. Yeah, I think we've bottled it at a great age. I I feel like this probably could have gone on a little bit, but it was just doing a lot of kind of talking and yeah, even having a little sip now while you're talking, it's really making my mouth water, which is <laughs> not good for editing sounds in a podcast. I like um, I, Yeah, it's... 
I like the ABV on it too. Like fifty one point eight for a for a twenty three year old is just a nice, solid ABV. It's 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 got enough alcohol to keep the structure. I like what yeah. you said, Jason, before about the structure of of the whiskey. And I'm looking at the the flavometer that we have. Again, back to the redesign of the labels here, right? We've slightly redesigned our flavometer. And but not too much. It's always a popular talking point, this flavometer. <laughs> Just the, the I would look not trademark this word. We, we, we adjusted the look of it slightly to, to match mm-hmm. the label. And what, what's shown here is, is how much of that floral component is here. And you said it before with yeah. the chamomile tea, that sort of just delicate mm. white tea coming through, which is so nice. Yeah, I, I think it's quite surprising how delicate this whiskey is for something that's over 50%. Yeah. It's quite um, a contradiction. You wouldn't expect it. You know, if you had to pick the ABV on this, I think you would maybe lean more towards the kind of McMira numbers than maybe this. I, I was very surprised yeah. by how kind of nice it's not a in-your-face shouty whiskey. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I think Noble is a, a good fitting for it. That's awesome, Jess. Awesome. Well, we will continue to update listeners as they make it around the world as they appear in in new places as they become available in the uk um and we'll we'll update pricing as we go along as well we're still early doors for for releasing Mm -hmm. pricing but we will say we've got some competitive little drinkers uh in this outcrop uh, of whiskeys so yeah, we're, we're always focused on price and getting it right and making it so that you're opening these bottles and drinking them. Mm. Don't collect dust on your shelves. Open them, share them with friends, learn about the Longmorn Distillery, taste a closed eye flut, taste something peaty from Loch Lomond, have liquid in French oak, have something from Sweden in bourbon, and have a cola red Ben Rennes. Like, <laughs> really run the gamut here. Oh, that was a good... I was, good I was rooting for you to not forget one then. You, you, that was well done. Give yourself a pat on the back. Cheers, cheers. I was inspired by your pro-level noble jewel in the crown here, Jess. <laughs> Jess, can we we have some emails that we wanted to get to, but I'd love if you wanted to stick around with us and, and read some of these emails, we'd love for you to hang out with us. Sure. Hit you me don't, up. Have, you don't have to shuffle. I love some admin on a Friday. <laughs> <laughs> no, these aren't complaints. These aren't these complaints. are the good these, kinds of emails. Oh, <laughs> these are good emails. Okay, I can handle good emails. They sound fun. All right. So I'm gonna bring at least two emails in, and, and one of them was actually meant to be in on uh, on the mailbag episode but you know as as the three of us know and, and elijah if he's listening in we didn't have a ton of time to record so it was a slightly shorter mailbag episode so we're now getting to this one now this is from jim cook who's who's based in massachusetts and he's written in before and he says hi j and j and i'm just gonna throw in the other j just for for good measure here jess um, he says, well, as day follows night, my girlfriend has once again 
come into the middle of a conversation, a whiskey podcast, where a phrase <laughs> or term has caused her to wrinkle her nose in disgust and me to make plans to move out to the doghouse in the backyard. <laughs> Would you please explain to her what is meant by, quote, you ready for this? Mm-hmm. Puking the worm. What? <laughs> so, so this isn't coming from us. No, no, I've never, I've never said this term. Let, let me, let never me, said. let me finish. He's, he's got a closing sentence here. He says, "You guys have been so helpful in years past that I'm confident you can relate the proper answer." And, and <laughs> he has come to us before, and he says, "My girlfriend has complained about X. Can you please?" explain it so as so I can keep my relationship going um puking the worm is this yeah so I believe I believe it comes from former tequila days when the worm was in the bottom of the bottle and I believe that puking the worm suggests you had so much tequila that you also downed the worm at the bottom of the bottle and you were so drunk that you brought it all back up, including the worm. So is that you just making a supposition after having watched Poltergeist 2? Or <laughs> hold on, stop. You've made a you've made an assumption that I have seen Poltergeist 2, which you know yeah, I have no, not I seen Poltergeist 2. You should watch it just for that scene, for the puking the worm scene. It is frightening. Um, <laughs> listeners will know. Oh gosh, the worm turned into a big demon that came out of uh, out of uh, Craig T. Nelson's mouth. I'll have to share the clip on on her Facebook page. Anyway, yeah, I'm, so, I'm good. You, <laughs> I'm good. That's uh, not a thing I need watch to see. It, Jason. So, so that's <laughs> your understanding of the term. That's my understanding of that term, and it's fallen out of favor. Jess, what is your understanding of the term? I've honestly never heard this term before, and I'm too frightened to Google it. I know it'll set <laughs> off the algorithms. <laughs> you don't want that algorithm in your. I'm gonna get so many like adverts, <laughs> like anti-parasitic tablets or something. I would have. You assumed might end that, up that watching that Poltergeist Jason's... too. Ooh, that's assuming I've watched Poltergeist one. Easy. Uh, <laughs> you haven't seen Poltergeist I, one, um... Jess. You know better than to assume I've ever seen any movie ever. <sighs> Jason earlier was surprised I'd seen Anchorman. I was like, even I'm not that basic. <laughs> I remain surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I like to keep you on your toes. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear the context in which that uh, phrase was being used. What podcast is in, are they encouraging you yeah. to puke yes. the worm or not puke the worm? Like, don't drink because you'll end up puking the worm. So yeah. I. I have I have never heard the term before, but I definitely made the same assumption that, that Jason has made. Initially, I thought, well, wait a second. Was this maybe, you know, was this maybe the term used when they would clean worm tubs? Ah, no, that seems too far-fetched. <laughs> and I didn't want to bring up worms. So yeah, no, I know. Exactly. So... So I think I'm sh- I'm sure that's that's in many podcasts, especially the one that we've not done on worm tubs about puking the worm. Yeah, yeah. This has become Basil Faulty and Faulty Towers. Don't mention the war. Now it's become don't mention the worm yeah. tubs. <laughs> or 
puking the worm. <laughs> uh, well, there you go. So, Jim, we did our we did our best, but it would be good to uh, if you wanted to write back to us and let us know the context, right? If you could use puking the worm uh, in in a sentence. Uh, that might <laughs> that might help us. The derivation is it is it Latin? Is it Greek? Is it French? Like anything would help. <laughs> so uh, so then we we got another email here, and this one is is simply from a guy named Dan. Oh, see, he just signs it Dan, but then when you look at his email address, this is Dan Grison. So this isn't just any ah, Dan. This is Dan go. Grison. Oh, so, it's good to hear from Dan. So Dan says, hello, gentlemen, and I assume he means lady as well. So we're just going to throw that in here, Jess. That's very assumptive of you. Maybe today I feel like I could identify as a gentleman. Well, that's true. I don't want to take that from you. There you go. That's how I do my fancy Fridays. All right. Okay. So hello, gentlemen. Uh, Just wrapped up the latest One Nation Under Whiskey podcast and loved hearing you both reflect back on the very first episode. After the year-end <laughs> wrap-up, I found myself scrolling back and listening to the to the first few episodes again. A few bits. There you go. Right. There you go. Yep, that's great. Um, a few bits and pieces, or is it Bob's? I found fun and wanted to share. And so this is him sharing from his first few episodes. In the first episode, you were discussing happy accidents and were referring to an old Pulteney that was unknowingly aged in an ex-Isla cask, which turned out to be stunning. Do you remember that whiskey, Jason? Yes, I absolutely remember that whiskey. I picked that up in November of 2011, I believe. Yeah. Uh, It continues, Lo and behold, just last year you had your own happy accident with the first (laughs) fill bourbon slash first fill sherry deluane. So it's true, happy accidents do happen. There you go. Just mentioned by Jess in the news segment. Mm-hmm. And then and then he says, whatever happened to the quote, if we read your email, we will send you a sample. He says, because yeah. I'm still waiting. Yeah. Did we ever do that? <laughs> Did we ever send sa- samples? I feel as if we Way, way up. back in the, oh my gosh, maybe through the first few episodes when I, you know, I didn't believe anybody would listen. I certainly didn't believe anybody would write in. And now we have both people listening and writing in. It's a remarkable <laughs> development. And you don't get rewarded for that anymore. So, well, that's, a, yeah. that's a shame. If he was in first, though, and he's still waiting, I mean, that is a, a verbal contract, <laughs> as we all know in Scotland, very important. Easy, easy, Jess. You're on our team. Back uh, to, it up. To, to be fair, we, we share samples with him anytime we're in Chicago and we see, and we see his shining face. So, <laughs> okay, so it's come to a tasting. Yeah, we share samples. He <laughs> uh, continues. Here's, an, here's another little gem. The birth of the paperboy. This is something I forgot. Ready? He says, initially voiced by Joshua in his best paperboy voice, he finally emerged in episode three and has been ringing in the news ever since. I don't remember. I don't remember voicing the paperboy. Do either of you? Wait, was that you on the BMX? Yeah. Oh, Jess, I forgot to tell you. I was going to pick you up on my BMX. <laughs> That's why you had a mouthful of hair. <laughs> Just all curls in your face. Instead yeah. of a flat cap. <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. I have to go back and listen to that myself. The birth of the paper boy in episode three. That's wonderful to hear. 
There was also, uh, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say it yet because he may mention oh. he may mention it on this. Okay. Um, okay. But if he if ask me as I get to the end, and and it. Just ask me as I get to the end if he mentioned it. So anyway, he continues. He says, you mentioned doing an interview on Skype. Man, is that a forgotten platform? How did they not <laughs> dominate the pandemic era? Zoom just came 100%. in and stole that away, right? Yeah. I remember us I've using Zoom that. for a little bit before Zoom yep. was Zoom. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I always, I, I thought that all the way through the pandemic. We're all on Zoom. Skype's been around for 10 years, 15 years. Why, it's, why aren't we on Skype right now? Yeah. Never happened. Yep. Spot Zoom. on, Dan. Zoom was a more efficient video platform. Yeah. Jess, do you know what Skype was? Yeah, yeah. I used to use it at uni. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Right. It was there. We had it. It was a thing. Yeah. And then it, it went away. Wow. Oh, Jess, you're going to like this. Okay. In episode three, the Seattle Jubilee recap, uh-huh. we hear for the first time the voice of Jess, <laughs> or as Joshua introduced her, Jessica Lomas. Yeah. Hey. I That's remember you saying, my, uh, ooh, full name check there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I stand by that. Uh, yeah, and that's me with my amazing transatlantic accent, because I remember you telling me when the podcast had dropped that I was in it and I listened to it and I didn't recognize myself and I had to get the time codes off you as to where I apparently appear as some pseudo-American talking in an accent that I don't recognize as my own. But I do remember that. You just I remember listened that well. straight through your own interview. I know, she sounds very familiar, but not... <laughs> wow, who else did he talk to? Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I could see you running around the Jubilee with a, a mic, chatting to people at stands, uh, having a little dram, and then disappearing off somewhere into the distance of the uh, festival. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Uh, Those were always excellent episodes where we were just completely broken men the next morning, just talking to each other in the huskiest three packs a day kind of voice yeah. <laughs> and just trying to trying to get through 50 minutes of talking to each other so that Joshua could add uh, interviews later in post. Yeah, we we sounded so bad. We sounded like the the little old people on oxygen machines sitting at the casino <laughs> just pulling right. the pulling the right. slots lever. Right. <laughs> right. I'll take another Jack and Coke. <laughs> That's how I felt the next morning. Oh. And then it was a great night. <laughs> I think that just means you've done the festival right. I mean, I, I, you shouldn't really be waking up being ready to hike a mountain feeling. <laughs> but I was never hung over. That's it. Was never ever ever just, about being hung over. It was just having talked. Yeah. yeah, it's the shouting. Yeah, yeah just constantly. So. All right, that's a that's a good trip down memory lane. Is there more? One. Yeah, there's a there's a bit more. Um, last but not least, and by the way, this will be the second time he says last. So just know that this is not the last. <laughs> he, he he would do well on this podcast. He would because totally that's a lot of our endings sound like that as well. Last but not least, uh, hearing Joshua say, "quote on wax." And Jason having no clue what that was. <laughs> and now I almost feel like Jason uses the phrase more than Joshua. Yeah, he definitely uh, does. He totally does. Um, 
It says, that's all I've got for you today. Loving the content more than ever, although I'm enjoying a trip through memory lane. Easy to listen to in a few, easy to listen to a few in a row. The first season all seems to be a tight 35. And it says, last, <laughs> last point, I thoroughly loved A Sense of Place by Dave Broom. Amazing book with gorgeous pictures. Yes, Jason, I actually read all the words. Even a fan of the horror genre likes books for more than just the pretty pictures. Wishing you all the best in 2023 and hope to see you out on the road this year, Dan. There you go. Was it was it Dan Grison who gave me a hard time for putting horror movie and horror movie viewers over the coals for them being a 100%. low ball sense of uh, entertainment? They, yeah, they one, hit the lowest common denominator. One hundred and ten percent, Jason. <laughs> Easy with a ten. Easy. Um, pump the brakes. Pump the brakes. Listen, we're we're taking care of business here. Can I can I just throw in one more email? No. Oh. No. But but I want to get the thing. Did he cover the thing that you wanted us to remind you ah, about? Ah, thank you. No, he didn't. So the thing that I often think back to, and we did this once, and I thought it would be a recurring feature, and and it wasn't. And I don't know if I'm thankful for it or not. But you had we did a commercial for your cleaning crew. And we, oh, yeah. we did like that. voice characters of, of this. Wasn't, wasn't that Cecil? <laughs> Cecil. Oh my gosh. And the outtakes on that were amazing. Well, amazing for us too, because, you know, it's so inside. But yeah, Cecil. Yeah. Wasn't it, wasn't it, you said cleaning crew. Wasn't it the gardening crew back when we had a gardening yeah. crew a decade ago? Yeah. Yep. Gardening crew. Yep. <laughs> a million years ago. Um, yeah, that, I do remember the recording of that. It was it was hilarious. Um, I was actually going to get us out here with one text that Joshua, you will rejoice that I am including this. You oh will yeah. rejoice. Uh, let me get my uh, let me get my rejoicing uh, outfit on. Okay, go ahead. So so this comes from Anthony Levinson, spirit oh. buyer at Roma in New York City. Who yes, indeed. Uh, they've, they've been selecting a bunch of casks um, and as we talked about having a, a retail episode with Holly Sidewand mm-hmm. uh, we will also be including Anthony Levinson in said episode mm-hmm. and not because he writes what he writes but once you hear this Joshua you're already on board with Anthony <laughs> I'm sure you're getting a lot of this right now but I was totally on board with the Zappa reference from the <laughs> Uncle Nearest podcast. Yes. Please give the Overnight Sensations album a listen so we can remain friends. Anthony Levinson is a really smart guy with excellent taste. <laughs> he continues in this again in text to me. I loved your reaction. <laughs> Almost like someone slipped you some acid and you were just starting to realize what's going on? What's happening? Am I supposed to know what's happening? And I texted him back, that was exactly my feeling. I was so fucking confused. <laughs> Jason, 
<laughs> I think what confused you was Dynamo Hum. <laughs> stop, stop. Dynamo Hum, gonna... Dynamo Hum. Where's this Dynamo coming from? I done spent three hours and I ain't got a crumb from the Dynamo. Dynamo, Dynamo from the Dynamo Hum. Anthony writes... <laughs> Where it was a delightful dose of dramatic irony for me, most of the listener base was probably right there with you. Maybe Zappa does not quite have the reach of Indiana Jones just yet. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm with him there. Like I think, <laughs> I, I think Indy's got more, more, more appeal, generally speaking. But I would argue. Listeners, please support me in this. Right in. So, so when Anthony texted me and said, I'm sure you're getting a lot of this right now, and then went on to support the Zappa reference, I was like, you are literally the only yeah, person I have heard from. Person. Jess, how about you, got Jess? the Zappa reference. Where, where are you no, on the Zappas? Definitely lost on Zappa references. <laughs> Sorry. I'll go away and, you know, correct that just to be on your side, but Thank currently, you, no. Overnight Sensation's a fantastic album. Okay, that could be my walking home music. I, I will be asking my device to play the Overnight Sensation's album uh, as I work through some emails in the office today. So I will have heard it by uh, the close of play today. Beauty, beauty. I appreciate that. Well, Jason, thank you for bringing in the text. Uh, Jess, thank you for bringing in the news. To, <laughs> I knew to- you'd love it. <laughs> Uh, to Matt Hoffman, thanks so much for for all your time and, and that day. And, you know, hopefully Anna and Shane are listening to this and Elijah yep. is listening yep. to this. Just be, being being in the Pacific Northwest with everybody was was a really special time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and to, to, our, to the people that wrote in and to anyone else who wishes to write in, we will try to do a much better job bringing emails <laughs> in. So go ahead. Questions at OneNationUnderWhiskey.com. Whiskey, of course, spelled without an E. That E gets you nowhere. Uh, you can also email us, info at singlecastnation.com, and we will do our best to get your email read within a six-month time frame. I mean, I think that's fair, right? Is that a fair statement? Yeah. Get it on maybe, wax? Maybe within this calendar year. There you go. There you go. Uh, not the fiscal year, though. That's going to be a bit different. No, not the fiscal. Never the fiscal. It's always the fiscal with you. It's always hey. the fiscal. All right. Well, cheers, Jess. Cheers, Jess. Joshua. Cheers, cheers listeners. Cheers, Westland team. Cheers, one and all. <laughs>